Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Uh, This is a special extra episode that will not be up to our usual impeccable audio standards. It'll be quite a bit shorter and it will be on a single topic. Uh, Today's guest is John Robb, an amazing thinker and writer who uh, his main platform is called Global Gorilla. John, what's your uh, URL? Well, you can find me on Patreon as the Global Gorillas Report or just look John Robb Patreon. That's my URL. And uh, I've been a longtime supporter of John Robb's work through Patreon, and it's worthy work, and I'd encourage you to support him as well. Thanks. Yeah, John's got a very interesting background. He's a graduate of the Air Force Academy, served seven years in the Air Force, before entering the private sector as a master's from Yale, uh, worked in sort of IT research, uh, done all kinds of interesting things. Uh, He's an entrepreneur uh, and uh, was one of the guys that helped invent blogging. Uh, you know, since 2004, he's been doing Global Gorillas, which has been about the most interesting, deep, and thoughtful analysis on current events, world situation, tactics, strategy, and perspectives about the future. Uh, so, and I started to put this idea together for a series of short extras about the uh, coronavirus. Uh, I thought, who better to have on to kick it off than John Robb? So, uh, John, give us your perspective. Where are we at now? What's important? Uh, what are distractions? What's the signal? What's the noise? Okay. Well, um, there's some good news and there's some bad news. <laughs> I'll give you some of the good news first. We were able to recover somewhat from some of the planning area errors that were uh, slowing our response to the, the pandemic. I mean, the pandemics have been planned for, planned against for decades. I mean, stretching back in the 70s. The problem is our pandemic planning assumed a world of 1980s or 90s, you know, a much slower world, not one as complex and as fast moving as, as this one. Um, so that caused three major problems. One was that there was a policy of only shutting off air traffic to specific countries, um, only after, you know, deliberation that you, you, you'd shut off that air traffic. Uh, rather than everything at once uh, in, a, in a very connected world, uh, you know, shutting off uh, air traffic to one country just just doesn't do it. Um, or, you know, quarantining all the passengers coming in just from one country just doesn't do it. I mean, you know, that kind of uh, blockage or damage is easily routed around in this kind of system. We're still not fully shut down on the air travel side, um, but we're better than we were. Uh, the second one was that, the, that we would have time to uh, ramp up testing. And so the way the FDA handled the you know, testing situation is that they were focusing on quality and they gave the CDC a monopoly on testing production, which seemed reasonable for a slow moving pandemic or, you know, relatively slow. And um, when the CDC screwed up, you know, single point of failure at the end of February, you know, the wheels came off the bus and um, the FDA responded by saying, okay, uh, we'll have a streamlined procedure for, for you know, independent labs or public health labs to apply for starting testing. And everyone pushed back, 
you know, a streamlined procedure. What the hell are you talking about? This is, this should be like all hands, assholes and elbows. Let's go. And um, they ended up saying, okay, well, anyone who's uh, already authorized for complex testing, get going. And so they, um, they zoomed up the testing and the testing has been really a, a really strong uh, response on the, on the part of, of labs in the States. I mean, on March 1st, uh, we produced, I think, what, 266 tests, and the ramp has been meteoric since then. We are up to, oh, as of yesterday, um, 65,000 tests a day. Um, and that uh, it's much higher than, you know, other countries out there. You know, Britain is trying to do 4,000 a day. I think they're under that, trying to ramp. Germany does about 12,000, at least the latest numbers I saw, and they're trying to ramp. Uh, South Korea was... 10 to 16 for quite a long time. They, I think they pushed it up to 20 just recently. And so we're not up to their level in terms of uh, per million person, uh, you know, per million population, but uh, we're, we're on the right trajectory. We're just, we're just zooming it. We're hitting out of the park. And the third thing was the medical manufacturing. Um, we let almost everything that manufactured in the medical field go off to China and other places. Um, and then we're caught flat-footed in, in the assumption that we'd have months to ramp up our production and that, you know, relatively small amounts of uh, strategic supplies or strategic stockpiles would be enough to get us through, we're all wrong. I mean, it is a, you know, come as you are situation. I mean, it happens so fast that what you have on hand is what gets you through. And uh, our thinking and our planning assumptions were all wrong. And there wasn't really anyone on the ball enough to act actively update them as, as we were going. It's just too late by that point. So, but there has been a pretty good response in terms of ramping up production on masks and other things. And then 3M has like doubled the production, which is awesome. And then there's lots of DIY alternatives that people are digging into. I mean, you can make a pretty good mask using cotton and uh, vacuum cleaner bags and maybe a little bit of, uh, of uh, floral wire or, or twist tie as, you know, inserted in a way that allows you to pinch the mask around your nose. So you can do a pretty good job there. And there are a lot of plans out there for doing that. So that's the good side is that we're, you know, responding well, still not as good as we could be on the flying side, but, uh, you know, in terms of production, there's seemed that kind of mobilization story that we used to get from World War II where, you know, we switched over production in a car plant to airplanes in three months, that kind of thing um, seems to be working, you know, going from a basket case military in 1939 uh, behind Portugal in terms of its capabilities and, and zooming it up to where it was by 41. We're in, we're in that kind of situation now. Well, that's good news. Let me ask a couple questions about the good news, though. Uh, you know, when we look back and say, what could we have done better? One of the things that really hops out to me uh, is there was a very significant failure to uh, correctly flag, integrate, and push up the chain, uh, the intelligence that the intelligence community was gathering in the December and early January timeframe, where things are coming out now that it's clear that, uh, analysts were forecasting that this had a fair chance to become a global pandemic. Uh, if we had spent $10 million in December and $50 million in January in ramping up testing, uh, we'd be in a very different place than we are today. Any thoughts on how these intelligence signals didn't get appropriately prioritized and escalated and turned into action? Yeah, I think by late January, there were um, a lot of intelligence briefings going out that said that this would become a pandemic. In fact, uh, if you looked out on the net, too, there were people talking about it. I wrote my January uh, Global Guerrillas report and 
entitled Pandemic. It was about this thing getting out of China and, and because of the way that is, the uh, virus acted, it would, it would zoom everywhere. So there were signals out there, but the assumption was that the, the planners, the bureaucracy, the people who did this and get paid for this would be able to pull it off, pull off the response, pull off the inappropriate thing. It's not like this is stuff is, is all made up on the fly. Though, you know, like I said, the planning assumptions that were built into the, the plants that we did have weren't sufficient. They were all geared to a, a pandemic of the 80s and 90s. You know, it's like it, people assume that, you know, all this stuff is all, you know, maybe is a you know, byproduct of being in the Trump era, that all of this is made up on the go. Um, but it's not. I mean, it's, this is stuff that has been thought through and we've paid billions for planning and, and efforts and preparation uh, just for this moment. And then it all fell short. Yeah, and we also didn't pull the trigger. I mean, I guess that my, my point was these signals were coming out, and, you know, light signals in December and stronger in January. Right. And yet the, the powers that be did not really seem to understand the urgency until maybe the uh, the very last week in February, the first week in January. I mean, that, there's some deep failure in intelligence coupled to executive action in that right. kind of delay. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. There was definitely a... a a longer delay in terms of containment because there's, I mean, there's four layers to, you know, confronting the pandemic is the, the mitigation, you know, basically social distancing and school closures and stuff you do mostly on the decentralized side. And then there's containment, which is you know, travel restrictions. And that's where the presidency uh, really could have played a, a much better role. And then the uh, isolation uh, case tracking that was all done through bureaucracy. You know, you need a lot of tests though, and that needs industries participation to do that. And then the final thing is quarantines. I'm, I'm more concerned now is about the, um, the big negative is, is just the scattershot approach to containing it. I mean, we have a couple big states taking extraordinary measures, too late, Cuomo trying to you know, compensate for de Blasio's you know, delay in taking measures, but most of the states are doing almost nothing. And this is kind of a situation, it's like, um, you know, we're headed towards, based on most estimates, uh, you know, 50% reduction in GDP and a 30% unemployment level within a month at this rate. Um, you know, with most of the major economies of the, you know, within the United States, uh, you know, shut down and quarantined, um, you know, the timer has been set. You know, the longer this persists, the, um, or the more likely that that bad effect will be kind of locked in, will be actually in a depression, even if we get a hold of the virus. And all of this delay is just lengthening the time to a return to normal economic operation. So it's better trying to take all of the pain up front or as close to up front as you can by taking measures early. And um, we're not doing that. Uh, there's a, a lot of, uh, of not only just states saying no, it's also even within states, there's some states have real problems enforcing quarantines, enforcing measures. You know, people are out and goofing off and, and doing whatever they do. And I mean, I think the attitudes towards those people will shift over the next couple of weeks uh, from, uh, you know, that's just stupid or that's, you know, uh, inconsiderate or uh, that kind of thing uh, towards, uh, wait a second, those folks are setting us up for a depression because it's going to lengthen this. And the more it lengthens the recovery effort, the more likely we're going to lose income and not have a job coming out of this. And uh, those people are actually stealing from me. Uh, let alone putting putting relatives at risk or putting yeah, me we'll, at risk. Yeah, we'll come back to that and talk a little bit about the cognitive psychology of these people. Uh, but before that, do you have any updates or any uh, sense of what's going on in, say, California, who blew the whistle first and shut the whole state down? 
right. uh, for six counties and then the whole state. Is there any data coming out of California yet to show that we're bending the curves? I mean, if, if this is actually being done, it almost has to, but I have seen nothing on the data front yet. Uh, I haven't seen that yet in California. I mean, somebody was just sending me data from New York and saying that three-day rolling average in New York is starting to curve around in the right direction. You know, the testing blitz has helped them out a lot. They've been sucking up a lot of the country's tests and uh, they've taken it seriously, at least at the, at the state level. But there's, you know, a lot of non-compliance at the New York City level. Um, I'm not sure that they're actually capturing uh, uh, all of the transmission that's occurring in that space. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think New York is probably showing the, the earliest signs of a, of a turnaround. The Boston area was, you know, early in its ability to, you know, move from one of the four initial epicenters to, to you know, kind of an also ran a number of cases and deaths. Uh, but the pressure from kind of the bleed out from New York is, is pretty intense. Um, just being next to that mega epicenter uh, is, uh, it's going to wear on Massachusetts and, and upper New England. Other, everywhere else, uh, it looks pretty much out of control. The one that worries me the most right now is New Jersey. Uh, it's, wow, it's got an uh, inverted testing system. It's like 2,800 positives for 300, or 300 negatives, and it's like, wow. I mean, talk about under testing. Virtually every person that they give the test to has it. That's scary. Yeah, at this stage, that's crazy. It ought to be at least 90% positive, negatives at this point. Oh yeah, we're, most of the states, you know, a lot of states are in that, you know, 90% negative space, but wow, New Jersey, I just, something seriously went wrong there. And has Jersey gone into a full lockdown yet? Not that I've seen. I, just a couple of days ago, I saw some news saying that they uh, were fighting to keep the casinos open. So I don't think the news has gotten to them yet. Jesus. Well, let's talk about this. I mean, uh, we've learned a lot. And, um, we're, I'm you know, for sure processing lots of things from this uh, whole you know, once in a hundred year episode. But the one to my mind that's most striking is what I would say how highlighted it, it has made uh, the issue of cognitive differences amongst people. Uh, even people of, you know, similar nominal intelligence. You know, there's some people who immediately get it. They understand what, it, what an exponential is. Uh, you know, that the current case loads two weeks ago didn't mean jack shit because of the low testing rates and started taking very strong actions. And then there are other people who are, you know, still, you know, going out to restaurants or buying takeout sandwiches or uh, what have you. Uh, and you'd say, by everything we know about them in terms of their career and their background, their aptitude, they should have come to similar conclusions, but they didn't. Right. Uh, any sense of, of what, what this is all about? Yeah, I think we're uh, really seeing how network dynamics works in a you know modern crisis. I mean, it's really kind of giving us all uh, a lesson in it. You know, it's, I'm still trying to get my head around it. I mean, I was just working on the whole idea of, of you know, what happens when you have, you know, a whole population network, a socioeconomic network like ours uh, in siege mode. And it kind of locks itself in through these you know, network connections into this, like, I can't spend money, I can't go out. Uh, even when you lift the restrictions, how do you get that thing moving again? And that you have to rethink everything you know about the way we did economic bailouts in the past. You know, the old bailout system is all kind of interest group driven, and it's uh, usually like some kind of power law distribution where, you know, 1% get 40%, you know, the top 20 get 80 to 90% of all the money. And it has really 
little effect in, on, on moving the entire network. And after the financial crisis, uh, we saw that that, you know, caused like a, a 10 year kind of dig out that, to get out of that kind of, you know, under siege mentality. And this one's going to be much worse. So I was thinking about ways to actually get that whole network to shift simultaneously and go positive and it would you know that that the stimulus program would have to be universal or inclusive of everybody so kind of a consensus that we all can come around and that would go into a you know a positive towards our cohesion um and then more cohesion means better coherence in terms of our decision making uh, and then um it has to be significant relative to the the problem that you know it has to be big enough that catches people's attention. It has to have some duration. Like if you were getting like a emergency UBI, you'd get a you know a thousand dollars a month for the next year or two years, and you know that that thing would be there, and you could plan against it, and then take action in your life that would allow you to utilize that resource, which then you know, allows people to dig out, and that you know they have some you know positive and uh, pro building economic activity. Uh, going on in their life. And there's lots of other little ones I put in and put into my, I, I started a, a pandemic 2020 uh, working space where I just, every day I put more stuff in. And that was one of the things I was working on this morning. But this, this, uh, this group, it's interesting because we, we didn't have like the federal government come down and say, okay, everybody go into quarantine. I mean, it was a decentralized decision-making process. I, mean, I don't even think it's hard to even think of the authority mechanism that they would use to do that. And, um, unlike you know, all these other countries where everything came down from on high. Uh, what is driving the, the, the quarantine is that we have a network of people who have decided based on you know, going through the evidence and going through the information that, that we need to take drastic action. They've come to that consensus decision and, and they're pushing their states to, to take action. And that decision and, and, and the amount of economic value that this group generates puts us on a path towards quarantine and you know, putting the economy on hold until the thing is solved. Now you have what we've seen in the you know, internet and the network is that this free information flow allows a lot of outliers to develop networks, that, clusters that, of people who are thinking you know, differently and they can self-reinforce or you know, they can uh, reinforce each other and uh, they can often stake out an alternative position. And um, in this case, they've taken positions that are contrary to that larger network. Now, here's the problem is that the, um, this kind of outlier position, and at least when, when it comes to this pandemic, it only exacerbates the economic damage that would damage them. Because it delays the time to when we get the quarantine lifted. It's really hard to lift the quarantine when there's many states that are still producing virus and you know, pr still you know, kind of shedding virus because they're lackadaisical efforts. I mean, we're kind of, this is a lowest common denominator kind of problem where we have to get everybody on board. So we have to figure out ways in which those clusters are actually, we can beat them down or get them to join in. And, you know, coming up with, you know, methodologies of doing that is pretty important. Flattening the curve was, was good. I just started one this morning. It's going to buy time for the test. You know, if this test ramp continues, we'd be up to million some odd tests somewhere, million tests a day, uh, a lot of them uh, 45 minute turnarounds, some of them you know, trying to come up with instant tests, moving towards ubiquitous testing. You know, that can help a lot, but it has to be done within the context of, of, a, of a, an effort that, that keeps the 
virus from progressing to a level that where testing is ineffective because testing is tied to you know contact tracing it's tied to isolation it's tied to uh, lots of other things that uh, it works best when the number of people infected are, are at a moderate level so anyway um, yeah it's just thinking through the, you know how how this socioeconomic system works as a as a network no one I you know I looked around and, and I talked to was talking to Jordan about this it's like there's no institution that addresses that so we have the you know the Fed works on keeping the financial system liquid and you know knows how to do that knows how to keep those banks you know lending and working and, and it keeps you know the market buoyed enough and keeps the keeps the, the whole thing greased in the right way so it doesn't seize up and then you have the uh, Congress who focuses on addressing the needs of given interest groups. And they're really good at that kind of, uh, you know, giving them enough money that they don't cleave off completely. And then you don't have this middle thing, this new where, where the, you can get this network lock in where people just go under siege or, or they en masse kind of make a decision that can't be reversed through those other mechanisms or it yep. takes a long time to kind of unlock them from that. I mean, um, the kind of the network health that, you know, of our socioeconomic, sociopolitical system, there's no one, no one really addressing that. I mean, we have a little, you know, you can do maybe a little bit on Facebook uh, in terms of mass messaging and, and, and simple kind of nudging and persuasion. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a new model emerging here. You just have to figure out all the levers on it. And also, we're operating, and you know, this is something you've written a, a whole lot about, and as you know, I've been interested in it as well, which is the emergences of these uh, highly decentralized uh, sense-making uh, networks. And unfortunately, those are partially maladaptive to the uh, kind of situation we currently have where right. we're coherence. And at least anecdotally, I would say pretty large and anecdotally for people I've interacted with, the... Uh, not taking it seriously, lagging on preparation, etc., seems strongly correlated with membership or association with those uh, particularly red Republican Fox News oriented uh, outlier collective sense making networks that seem to have not made sense. In fact, they made anti sense, and some of them still are. Early Trump adopters are pretty much all on the um, pandemic front. Yeah, a few of the good ones are like Bannon and uh, Kernovich and guys like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, frankly, it was Tucker Carlson who I think finally sat that idiot Trump down and smacked him across the face for two hours and made him pay attention. But unfortunately, when you look at the topology of the, uh, the red uh, collective sense-making networks, the main repeater is Trump. You know, things circulate, they circulate up through various layers and they get up to Trump, then he broadcasts and then they go back out and become modified and evolved. But that motherfucker uh, never got it, right? He still hasn't gotten it. And if he were a strong, decisive leader uh, he could cohere uh, the red collective intelligence networks, you know, back on board much more rapidly. So it seems to me a grotesque failure of top-level uh, leadership uh, by the president. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I read it a little bit differently. I mean, not that it's, you know, I think he's making a lot of the wrong decisions, but also I think it's more like, okay, for instance, uh, last night he was talking about ending the crisis. Yeah, what the, ending, fuck? what the okay. fuck is wrong with that guy, right? Yeah, but that yeah, but that yeah. The way I read it is that he is actually using that as a negotiation, with, or you know, as part of his negotiation with with the Democrats for his bailout package. Because if you won't let me solve this crisis using my 
bailout package, then let's just dissolve the crisis. And it's, it's a crazy position. It's right out of his negotiation kind of handbook. You know, it's a, the art of the deal. It's, you know, take a crazy position and, and convince me to move off of it. And then and when I do, you're happy with what I give you. And um, he's done that a couple times during this crisis, and this is one of them. Horrible. Yeah. He doesn't seem to understand that this is wartime. This is not some sleazy real estate deal in Atlantic City. We're dealing with lives of millions of people here, and we can't be playing these egocentric, horseshit fucking games. Uh, you know, I, I never liked Trump. I've always despised him as a human being. But this uh, crisis has brought out him at his absolute worst. I mean, uh, you know, that unbelievably evil little snide remark about Romney. What is wrong with that man, right? Uh, um, hopefully this will be a huge lesson to the American people. Character fucking matters. Do not vote for a person of known rotten character, no matter what you, how much you agree with them on the issues. Yeah, well, his, his approval for handling the crisis is, is in the 50s now. So um, <laughs> I, it's exactly the opposite, having the opposite effect. Um, it's, just a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think you mentioned Carlson. I still think that guy, he has a better ear for the network. He, it, it's interesting if you're a politician at the national level now, you have to, to really be effective either on the left or the right. You, you have to have your ear open to the network and, and listen to those outlier positions. And often a lot of the truth of things that you should be doing are out there on the edges. And Carlson tends to pick that kind of truth messaging up and I think he's really going to be a pretty strong candidate for the Republicans in, in, in four years. Um, How about this year? Yeah, I, well, I think it's too late to turn that. Um, but in four years, I think he's going to run. And he's I don't got know. a better year. The actuarial uh, attributes of coronavirus uh, may open up that door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, could, yeah, it could. There's yeah. still time for Corona to actually make the decisive vote in the presidential campaign. Exactly. Biden, Biden has been totally absent. He's like, I mean, I'm watching him in Delaware, and Delaware is one of the, the states on the bad boy list in terms of response. So um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, Biden has nothing other than saying that he's electable. Yeah, platitudes, the king of all platitudes. And, you know, he's not Trump. He's not clinically insane, though he might be demented. Yeah. <laughs> what a fucking country we have. That, yeah. uh, those are our two choices. <laughs> Something fundamentally wrong with our whole system. Let's go back briefly here, though, before we wrap up to this uh, economic response. It's something yeah. I've been writing about a lot on Twitter and on Facebook. And it strikes me that uh, you're exactly right. This can't be a top-down. This can't be a Pareto 80%. Uh, 20% of people get 80% of the, of the swag and most of it wasted. This has got to be bottoms up. It's got to be a mini UBI, universal basic income. And I've also been saying, I'd love to get your reaction to this, that we can't be screwing around with anything that requires any systems development, any complexity, because frankly, right. people are emotionally and intellectually overloaded by the crisis. And what I've been proposing is that you put it out to a three-day bid to the biggest credit card companies and say, all right, people, here's the drill. It's all going to be done with plastic debit cards sent out monthly. Uh, start by sending to everybody's IRS filing address. For those that don't have an IRS filing address, they can register at any bank and they'll tap them into a real simple system. For welfare and homeless, the welfare departments can literally hand these cards out on the street, take a biometric picture, and submit that to a database. And then here's the part that I like of my own idea. You know, my own ideas are always good, so what the fuck? And that's that the cards have a 45-day time to live. 
you haven't spent your 45 days on uh, on your April card, it disappears. It goes back into the into the pool to be redistributed, so that we aren't subject to uh, you know the famous paradox of thrift, uh, where well, thrift in some ways is a good thing. In a situation like this, if everybody saves, uh, we all die, or the economy dies. So uh, the beauty of uh, specific uh, cards and a new card sent out monthly, yes, it raises the cost a little bit, uh, but the time to live on the money on each card provides a huge force to get people to actually get that damn thing into the economy. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of little private currencies had that same kind of thing. It was kind of like a negative interest rate. Yeah, demurrage, as we call it. Yeah, demurrage, exactly. And, um, you know, it kind of gets you to spend them. Um, yeah, this is more brutal, though. This is a cliff. 45 yeah. days where it goes back into the common pool uh, and put it right on the card. This yeah. money expires on, say, the April 1st card, expires on May 15th. Put it right on the card. And I think, uh, you know, that way we get rid of all needs for fancy new systems. Uh, we can deal with everybody from the homeless to, uh, you know, the regular homeowner. Uh, we can run it as many months as we need to. Uh, it does have a little bit higher operations costs, but it seems to me at this point, a little bit higher operations costs uh, is way superior to taking, you know, systems development risks, fancy processing risks that a lot of people aren't going to be able to hop through, particularly because they're not supposed to leave the house, et cetera. So, I, think that, I think the big thing here too is that if you really look at this, like an emergency UBI over two years in you know, conjunction with this crisis and what it can do, I mean, the cost, the price tag is what, a little over $4 trillion. Um, it's a lot, but, you know, borrowing at 30% or borrowing 30 years at less than 1% is, is pretty attractive in, in terms of financing it. Um, but I think unlike those, all of these bailout bills and these multi, the one that the Democrats are proposing here, two and a half trillion. So you're, you're almost there. Um, unlike those, this would have a very strong ROI and then any kind of like real stimulus, a real kind of paddles to the, to the chest of the economy or socioeconomy with the you know, stopped heart is you could actually show if you measure it, you know, with, with a lot of focus, you know, that this thing is actually generating two, three, four, five times returns over the, over a 30 year period. I mean, because if you can bounce us out of this, this crisis early, return us to where we were, or maybe zoom us in you know, a little rocket fuel on the economy and getting us up to a, say a 10% rate next year, that is, is just gold. I mean, you look at any kind of study right now on, 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 on UBI, it's always that, it's, that the effects last. You don't bounce back from it when it's gone. Yep. It lasts. It builds, it builds infrastructure. It builds capital, actually, because you know, in our current world, we have actually an excess of capital in some sense, in financial capital. You know, why is all this money sitting in banks not being lent out? But if we had demand push, that capital becomes mobilized. We actually create things. Uh, it's an investment. Look, a 30-year bond at less than 1% shows that this vast pool of capital at the global level is looking, is, is screaming at the United States, say, just invest it. Because, you know, there's got to be a way to, to, that this is going to, you know, yield a, a positive return, you know, inside the United States. But what better way to invest it? And even though it's waste it, it, you invest in Americans and Americans let them invest that, that money. You know, you know, 320, well, actually probably 250 million adults all making decisions uh, as where to spend it uh, will yield much better results than a lot of the government bureaucrats would if they were focusing in on, on bailout money. 
Yeah, the Democrats' error is they want to give it to the state-level bureaucrats. The Republican error is they want to give it to big corporations, most of whom it's inappropriate for. Uh, and the real answer is to give it to the fucking people, right? Uh, that's the answer. You know, all of the people listening to this show, call your congressman, call your senator, tell them that 80% at least of this money needs to be in the form of universal basic income grants going out to the people monthly. Uh, let me talk briefly about the corporate side. You know, airlines, that's ridiculous. We shouldn't be giving any, any money to the airline companies because we, you know, airline companies have come and gone forever. Uh, the key thing about airlines are the airplanes, the pilots, the mechanic, the uh, stewardess, uh, the gates, et cetera. And those things get recombined into new economic entities. Uh, the shareholders and the bondholders take it up the poop chute. Oh, well, that's life. Uh, the actual elements that you need to run an airline are physical and tangible and survive any failure. Uh, right. the, only, the only companies we should be investing in are ones with very deep uh, intellectual property creation stacks, like right. Boeing, uh, like uh, Intel, uh, like the automobile companies, and I'm sure uh, pharmaceutical, although they're, they're not going to have a problem probably. But we should that we should not be uh, trucking's another example. Oh, yeah, trucking's taking it up, taking it on the chin. Oh well, uh, trucking companies also come and go at a very high rate, uh, and uh, trucks will be uh, recombined and with drivers under new corporate umbrellas that will be debt free because the old ones were wiped out and the trucks were bought for twenty cents on the dollar. So right. it's ridiculous for the feds to try to pub, uh, prop up trucking companies, but trucking companies have a huge lobby, as do uh, airlines. And so, again, let's tell our uh, elected officials, really think smart about what industries we must have uh, that we lose the capability if we let them go away. And they're basically only the deep IP stack companies, uh, you know, like the Boeings and like the Intels. Uh, and let's not uh, take the asset re recombination companies and prop them up because, frankly, we get that uh, refactoring for free. And, frankly, those industries will be better off once they're refactored away and free from debt. Correct. I agree. It's, it gets more interesting when you look at universities. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Do, you keep, do, you, you know, do you help them make the transition to doing more of what they do online? And a lot of that physical plant and a lot of that uh, – uh, personnel kind of overhead becomes um, unneeded. Do you help them restructure? Yeah, I think uh, we probably have to, but whether they should be the ones to restructure or not, I'm not so sure, tell you the truth. Uh, you know, they're, if they restructure, they're going to do it in a ponderous, self-serving way. So I think I'm going to reserve judgment on whether they should be provided a massive bailout to transition uh, or competitors ought to be allowed to rise up and take their market share. Right. Or uh, making it easier to get high quality degrees online because um, yeah, everyone's yeah. really just after the certificate, right? Well, that's uh, unfortunate, in which case they shouldn't waste their time. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, a guild type certifications is what, what my view of the game B world will be about, where there'll be guilds for every occupation and it'll be their job to certify people within their guild. And pay scales will typically be within bands uh, around guild, cert guild certification levels. So you're a Python level four. Uh, that means you're between 70 and, 100 and $105 an hour. And your guild stands behind your certification. And if they're not doing a good job certifying the guild rate, people will stop paying it. So they'll have a strong incentive to uh, you know, self-administer competency tests, and also uh, for members of the guild, part of their income will go back to the guild in terms of which will provide training for them to uh, ramp their skills up. I see that as a much better model than uh, these unbelievably ponderous uh, higher education factories that we have today. Yep. Yep. 
Anyway, there will be some very interesting changes on the other side of this, John. Uh, I appreciate your time here today for this first kickoff uh, special uh, coronavirus podcast and uh, continue to look forward to reading your very good work on uh, Global Gorillas on Patreon. All right. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, I'm writing every day now, so it's it's a lot of stuff. (laughs) It's constantly evolving. It's a lot of fun. Take care and thanks for having me on. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.